The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life. And today uh, we're going to be talking with my friend and colleague, Mary Case. And uh, before I introduce her, I just want to say that the pro... Programs like these that that uh, we can just open up to talk about, about anything and everything having to do with with museums, with people who have seen a variety of transitions and can begin to identify patterns in our field are really some of my favorite shows. So I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. Now, many of you know Mary Case. Uh, she has been working for... Uh, many, many years in our field working to improve nonprofit organizations and the boards, businesses and associations and foundations that support them. Mary also co-founded Quality Management to a Higher Power. Many of us know that is the acronym QM2, which is a community of consultants that help museums and cultural organizations build successful futures through leadership, management, interpretation and organizational design. Several uh, weeks ago, we had John Durrell, uh, who is also a member of QM2 on the show, and he talked about uh, uh, some of the work that he is doing with promoting leadership in uh, the history field. Uh, Mary has been has had an amazing career. She uh, started out as a museum registrar, and then she has transitioned to the world of being a consultant. She's also been now uh, a lead faculty. Uh, for the Institute of Cultural Entrepreneurship. And so today we're going to be talking about all of those topics. Mary, welcome to the show today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Mary, as I, as I alluded to, uh, you've been a registrar, consultant, and teacher, and now you're a leadership trainer. Uh, could you share with our audience a little bit? I think there, our audience is always very interested in uh, the key experiences that have shaped your career trajectory and your thoughts about, the, about museum practice. Uh, well, when I was... Uh... 16 years old, I moved to Doylestown, Pennsylvania, in Bucks County, right north of Philadelphia, ripped away from my first boyfriend, and um, I 
moved to what is now the the uh, Michener Museum. At the time, it was the Bucks County Prison. My father was the warden of that prison, and I had a, a room on the third floor of the prison looking overlooking the Mercer Museum. At that time, almost nobody visited the Mercer Museum. Those of you who know that museum knows it's a seven-story c- concrete building, very gothic and very romantic to a 16-year-old girl who was pining for her first boyfriend. So um, several years later, I ended up working in that museum because it was so romantic to me as a, as a bereft 16-year-old. Uh, I became the registrar there, <clears throat> and um, that, I guess, is why love shaped my career, or the loss of love shaped my career and gave me love for museums in a way. That's how I became the registrar at the um, at the Mercer Museum because of love, and I have loved this career for now forty years. So that's oh. how I <laughs> that's how, I, how it was shaped, and and the full the full circle story of the of that jail becoming a museum, which is a very very that the Mitchner Museum is a very nice small museum, small art museum. Well, actually, I guess you'd have to call it a medium sized art museum now. It's a really sweet museum. So. That's how it was shaped in the very early years. That's a wonderful... Thank you, Mary. I, I, after all these years, I've never heard that story. So thank you for sharing sharing <laughs> that with us. I, I think it's wonderful. I'm always... Uh, I think there are decisions to come into this field are so varied, and but but at the root of them are, are often uh, uh, feelings of love or safety, and, uh, and you've, you've reinforced that as well. So you were, obviously, you were a registrar uh, at the Mercer Museum and then several other institutions, but pretty early on, you made a conscious decision to be um, to begin a career as a consultant, and it was at a time when, really, there were very few museum consultants. Mm-hmm. Uh, what prompted that decision? Well, you're, you're right about that. I uh, My registrar's career was... Um, a very interesting one. I had work at the Strong Museum at a time when computers were just being introduced to the museum world. And the Strong was one of those institutions that was collection-rich and had a lot of money at that time, or had more than most. And uh, they they were developing a computer program, and I was part of that work, um, fortunately, and that allowed me to be hired by IBM at a gallery they were opening. Not because I was a particularly strong uh, computer person, but I did have some experience when people, most people had none. So I went to work for them at a gallery they were opening uh, at 57th and Madison. And then, of course, just because I worked there, people thought I had huge amounts of experience in computers, which I actually didn't, but I had a little more than most. Um, So that was part of the reason why the Smithsonian hired me as the chief registrar for the Smithsonian because they needed to have what was then 300 separate databases around collections brought together in some way. This is a task they're still working on now more than 20 years later. Um, And I... I did. I knew I didn't want to work for the government for my entire career because it's a bureaucracy, as wonderful as the Smithsonian is. And I knew that a bureaucracy would, 
you know, would stultify me, would, would bring me to my knees for a whole career. Uh, so I promised myself five years working for them. I ended up working seven years for them. And it was fantastic. Working for the Smithsonian is just absolutely wonderful. But after five years, you know, if you are a change agent, which I kind of am, um, you know, you've stepped on as many toes as you possibly can and lived to tell the tale. So I had to look for something else, and it did take me two years to figure out that I couldn't become a museum director with the experience I had, even though I had experience of managing lots of budgets, you know, lots of money, and lots of people by that time. I didn't have the direct experience of managing a board, nor did I have the direct experience of raising money, uh, major gift money, which are two fundamental requirements if you want to, you know, land a job as a museum director. The headhunters told me that I could, they could get me in, interviews in places I did not want to live. <laughs> so, I... Okay. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, in cold places, by that I mean, by, that's what I mean, in cold places, and I have a southern husband... And he didn't want to go to cold places. So I had at the time this wonderful guy that I'd been working with in um, very specific ways. The AAM had asked me to bring some business savvy into the museum world. And I was doing a a workshop. I had done it five times called Project Management Through, Project Success Through Project Management, PS2 which is the genesis of QM2. Interesting. And I was doing that with this guy named Will Phillips, which some of the listeners may remember, who, who some of the listeners may remember. So he was kind of my partner in crime, and he is still my partner in crime. So he said to me, well, we could start this little consulting practice. I said, okay, we'll start this little consulting practice. So I quit my job at the Smithsonian, and I started consulting with him. I didn't quite realize that actually being a consultant means you have to get your own clients. (laughs) I hate that part of it. (laughs) So I had to get my own clients. He is really a fantastic consultant, and he was a wonderful guide to me, a wonderful mentor to me. Uh, But I still had to get my own clients. And that was the hard part. That is the hard part, of course. That first year I made, um, or the first half year, because I quit in the middle of the year, <clears throat> my income was, um, I think it was $7,125 when I toted it up. Not very much. But I was, you know, I was building a business, and uh, that's when, how it started. That's very, very interesting. Again, a story that that uh, you've you've never shared with me. But now I want to share a little story on you. And I and I warned you that I would do this. But uh, this is really probably my first public opportunity to thank you and to thank Will for giving me the courage that I needed when I uh, first started out my my consulting practice, which what you, know, you and Will and a few others were really laying a groundwork at a time that things were a little scary for those of us who were moving outside of the of the museums. And, and I remember you giving, you and Will giving a workshop at AAM about, you know, so you want to be a consultant 
doesn't. Uh-huh. And 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 there there you were um, uh, in. Uh, I wouldn't call it um, creative dance, but it truly was, you know, a little little bit of a of a mini play. And uh, you you I you said, okay, well, this is you know, this is me, or this is a consultant in their first year. And you had your file of facts open. You know that will tell listeners how old this. How long ago this happened? Because we didn't have uh, smart anythings. We I had think people paper. don't even know what some people don't even know what a file of facts is anymore. <laughs> yes, I should. I was it's just like a rotary I, phone. Yeah, yeah, it's like a rotary phone. Um, it it was. Uh, it's it's a small little calendar that you kept in your pocket, and it had uh, everything that an iPhone has now. But it had little tabs for your your calendar and. And your your list of contacts, and there you were pantomiming what it was like when you were first uh, starting out, and you were sort of looking at at the blank calendar, and you were looking at the blank lists and in the back of your contacts, and thinking, well, you know, will it will the phone ring? Uh, you know, who's going to call me? What am I going to do? I have all this open time, and then it was a flash forward to you know, being a consultant. You know, say two three years later where you were again still looking at your file of facts but you were saying wow I now need to be in Topeka and Chicago and New Mexico all in the same week how am I going to get this done and it just was (laughs) I I will still always remember that um uh, little little vignette. Uh, I remembered it often during the first couple of years of, of my career. Again, I uh, uh, having to get your own clients and pushing yourself out there and looking at the email and wondering if anyone was ever ever going to call you again uh, right. or contact you because you didn't have the power of the institution behind you anymore. It was right. just you know you out there selling uh, who you were and and what you did and. And creating a practice, so I really want to uh, to thank you and and Will for doing that uh, uh, that great encouraging work. Well, you're so welcome, and uh, I always I'm always happy when people come over to the what is still I think known by some as the dark side, and being a museum consultant is really a lot of fun to have control over your own time and your own money and your own clients, making your own decisions on that really very empowering it is but um can you just share a little bit uh what it was like uh being a consultant in in those early days i mean as you see i mean you've 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 sort of already alluded to it that it is a quote dark side um that that uh and i think in this day and age things have have changed a little bit so completely they have absolutely changed um in the last particularly since the economic downturn, people are, so many people are working as consultants and uh, so many museums are looking for consultants to be either a pair of hands or energy or ideas. I mean, I think people, I think, you know, all museums are looking for consultants for uh, the extra hands or for the ideas and energy. I mean, those are the two things that, uh, you know, the ideas and the energy and the extra pair of hands. Those kinds of those are the two kinds of things that um, you know that people that museums are looking for. All all companies are looking for those kinds of things now. It's a, just a completely different world than when I started. Yes, uh, and and for me as well. Uh, 
I think before we move on into uh, delving into a couple more of these ideas, uh, I want to go ahead. We're going to break a little early, Mary, because I I, uh, I know we're going to get into a little bit more conversation, and I don't want to uh, to interrupt the flow. So, okay. uh, with the permission of my wonderful executive uh, producer today, uh, we are going to break a little bit early and take a sh- take a short break. Uh, Remember, you can always reach me at carol.bossert at verizon.net. And when we come back, I will also remind you of Mary's uh, contact information if you want to follow up on this conversation today. But we will be back in just a moment with more of a conversation with Mary Case. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. I'm here with Mary Case today. And Mary, before we went on break, you said something very interesting that I wanted to follow up on a little bit. You said, um, and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to paraphrase it, you said that the consultants can provide an extra pair of hands uh, to a museum that needs one, uh, perhaps uh, hands and expertise. But um, consultants can also provide ideas and energy and I was wondering if you could just uh, talk very briefly a little bit about what you meant by ideas and energy well um, if you one of the major contributions I make I think is that I bring new perspectives you know a consultant sees a lot just by the very fact that they are in Topeka and uh, and Doylestown and Cape May, New Jersey, and you know all kinds of places that um, 
such creative work is being done. So when you go to, you know, when you go to another town, you're able to deliver what you've seen in the last town you've been. It's not that, you know, that it's complete, that the idea that you bring is completely replicable, not at all, because it has to fit. You know, each idea has to fit in the, in the, the, in the new place has to be redesigned for the new place. But that's what you bring, what you have, you know, what you know. And maybe it works in a new place, maybe it doesn't. But that's what you bring is ideas and energy into the new place that you go. That's part of what every consultant brings, I think. Um, And I've seen many, you know, many mid-sized museums, I mean, mid-sized museums can't buy the talent and in smaller places, there just isn't, you know, in the big, in the big markets, there's a lot of talent. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's axiomatic. The big markets have a lot of talent. In the smaller markets, they don't have all those people. So that's why they hire consultants. They, you know, they hire them short time, short term, and they bring them in to, um, you know, to bring that, those ideas and that energy to their staff and to, you know, give them a little shot of that. At least that's what I've seen in the best museums, of many of which are in the smaller markets. That's a very good point. I, and you're absolutely right. Uh, there are, while we always talk about the, about the big museums, uh, m- there are more smaller, <clears throat> mid-size and smaller museums than, than the large ones. And we've talked on this show a little bit uh, about how smaller doesn't necessarily... It may be may be more challenging, but they also can be more creative places because yeah. they can be a little bit more nimble. Have yeah. you've seen that as well? I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. So some so some of these ideas I think can take hold in a smaller market uh, because a, a museum director can uh, can choose to you know, do a little something a little bit different. Uh, perhaps their board is a little more attuned because there's a there's a, a stronger uh, personal relationship. They see each other in the grocery and at the softball field and 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 in other uh, community events. Uh, and I've seen that work quite well as as well as as uh, I'm always pleased when I can leave an institution with a little bit more capacity. Uh, you know, exactly. maybe maybe not skills and knowledge, but I but sometimes all they need is. I always think of the Wizard of Oz and giving the Scarecrow, you know, uh, the piece of paper. Sometimes we just need the permission mm-hmm. uh, to say yes. You you've got good creative ideas. Go forth and use them. Right. I mean, it's it's. Um, I mean, the downside. It, it's it's. One of the things that happens is you in the small markets you hire a really good young person and train them, and then they're gone in two or three years. That's a very typical thing to happen. So that's you know you, you as a museum director you you know you want to chew your arm off you chew your arm off when that happens. It happens all the time. The other thing that happens in, in the smaller museums is you get to hire those curators who have now been let off for the, from the bigger museums because they're not, they're not holding staff like they used to, but you get to hire them for special projects, and that's, that's also pretty wonderful. You know, you wish you could have them full-time, but you couldn't. 
possibly have them full time. But now you have this talent that's floating around in 2014 that wasn't floating in, in 2007. So it's a different world that we live in. It is. And, and just to finish, finish that up a, a little bit, um, there seems to be a little bit more, if not a revolving door, uh, an ability for uh, cons- people who have had a fruitful consulting practice, if the right opportunity comes along, to go back in-house. Oh, yeah, uh, that happens you know, too. When you and I started, it was sort of like once you were a consultant, you were you were tagged, and uh, there there was never going to be any chance to go back in. And I think that that is that's a very interesting way uh, that that the business is changing a little right, bit more. Right. But then the, the other thing that happens is once you become a consultant and you have that kind of control over your income and your life, it becomes harder and harder to go back into an institution and have to, you know, put on your pumps every day and go to those ghastly meetings that they have inside institutions, you know. (laughs) Uh, Well, it sounds, though... You hear my my prejudice. (laughs) I, I, believe me, I understand. Um, I, I too, sit uh, and take many, many uh, meetings, particularly the ones that are there with overseas clients in my, uh, I like to call them my bunny slippers and my sort of bedhead. Uh, I will let listeners know that I am fully dressed today uh, Mm -hmm. for this interview. Uh, But I understand exactly, exactly what you mean. And, and, you know, perhaps uh, if we can shift the culture of uh, museums a little bit more and get rid of uh, the those ghastly meetings or at least ask why we're having meetings that we all feel are ghastly perhaps it will be a little bit more enticing to come in and out and that's my my segue mary actually to move well, on before before oh. you make that segue just let me say that i do have a paper on my website at qm2.org on being a consultant and that's um, available to anybody who is in, interested in uh, in that so you just have to search on being a on being a consultant on my website and the papers there. Oh, that's wonderful, Mary, and that's qm2.org, and I'm sure that people can uh, uh, reach out to you there as well. Thank mm-hmm. you for uh, for for uh, sharing sharing that with us, and I'll uh, repeat that at the end of the show. But so making my segue, you know, we've been talking uh, about museum directors and what it's like to be a museum director today. And um, that really brings me to your, I wouldn't say third chapter of, of your career, but certainly um, it sounds as if you are moving your uh, consulting practice to be working more directly and more specifically with museum directors. Well, when I, uh, when I left the Smithsonian, my um, reason, the, the specific thing I wanted to do was work with boards because I felt that boards might be the limiting factor on museums and, uh, or were the limiting factor. That is, the quality of the board work uh, was not up to the quality of so many museums that I knew, that they were holding the museums back, I felt. And then, of course, when I really started doing that, I realized that I couldn't work with boards unless I worked with a director. They were the gatekeepers. So at that time, I started working with the boards, and I've been, I mean, started working with the director, and I've been doing that work, working with the director, working with the boards through the director since. And 
basically that has been my work, is working with the directors since that time. I run these things called Museum Directors Roundtables. John Durrell and I and and Anita Durrell do these uh, executive roundtables. So that's basically the has been the core of my work for almost 20 years now. And of course we we do these you know we do planning and we do strategy and all of that sort of stuff that collect that uh, consultants do. But the most important work we do is the work of these ex- with these executives in these executive roundtables. That's the most important and the most meaningful work that we do. Can you uh, tell us a little bit more about what an executive roundtable entails? Uh, the the roundtable tables uh, meet three times a year for a day and a half. They have uh, a maximum of 14 people. They're completely confidential. Um, we recruit from all of the disciplines in museums because we've learned that the children's museum people have something to teach the art museum people who have something to teach the history museum people and the historic house museum people and the science museum people. The purpose is to improve the sustainability in all the um, meanings of that word of the institution and to improve the director's life. And by that I mean... We've learned that if the director's in pretty good shape, the institution is likely to be in a better shape. And so the topics of family life and how to, how to keep enough time in the director's life for him or her to have a research component in his, in, you know, to keep some research in their life, to have enough time to go to their kids' sports events, uh, to take a sabbatical from time to time, to um, have their own health, you know, to take care of their own health. All of those things are important. To think about their own retirement and things like that. All of those are topics that come up. Yeah. The What do you think the perennial topics are in a roundtable? What do you think? Um, uh, funding, boards, that's it. Those are the two. Funding and board. Yes, you're absolutely right. Those are the two perennial topics that come up over and over and over again from every direction. Those are the two topics, but there are also every other thing that you can imagine. I'm, I'm going to open a new cafe. Tell me what my issues are going to be. That, that would be a topic that comes up. I have a brilliant curator. He's making me crazy. <laughs> I'm going to fire him. I don't want to fire him. What can I do? That might come up. Um, I I run trolleys in my town. I, I operate the trolleys in my town. The guys who run the trolleys get tipped. How, how do I account for that? in the income of those guys. That's a very complicated topic, it turns out. Because it's, you know, it has to do with the um, IRS and, you know, all kinds of things. But moreover, it has to do with other, other, other staff salaries and how they feel about that. 
you know, and the same is true in the cafes. All that tipping stuff has to do with HR issues. So we get we get this these tactical issues, and then we we'll, might somebody might come in and say, "I am city fund I'm city funded, and I can see the handwriting on the walls. I got to get out from under that." So we might spend a whole morning on a topic like that. And that might come back for three years because it'll take him three to five years to do that. So that will be a reoccurring topic. So these 14 people then become a a, a cohort of of sorts and a uh, a, a mutually, uh, mutual mentoring um, that that you're facilitating. That's a very, very interesting approach. So how... Now, so so people come. You you said that these are day and a half work, uh, day and a half uh, meetings, uh, three times a year. Right. And, but that, but then, how long do people stay in this? I mean, is this sort of like a lifelong commitment? Well, I mean, it's not. Um, you know, I don't get married to these people, but they. I have had people stay in for. Let's see. I think the longest is the longest person I've had started with me in 1996. And he's, this is his la- he's just uh, stopped this last year. Um, but people stay in a couple decades sometimes. But it's not unusual to stay in 12 years, something like that. Not at all. Yeah, certainly the life, you know, the life expectancy of a, of a museum director uh, or, you know, in one job or another. I think this is, this is really fascinates me, Mary, because it, it, you have you and and uh, and John and uh, the the group that works on this really have identified uh, a, an issue that was lacking in our field. Um, there are such things as executive coaches, and but uh, and certainly within the uh, uh, the for profit world, having executive coaches, having executive coaches come in almost on a you know on an on call basis is not unusual. But that s- certainly has not been the uh, the the history in in our field as as museum uh, directors, and and so this does offer a a a way of getting that kind of coaching and help and self-help uh, right. in, in, a, in a way that seems realistic. I mean, a day and a half, three times a year, and maybe some phone calls uh, are realistic in a museum director's busy schedule where, you know, taking off three weeks or even a week to go to some of the other leadership conferences that are available. I'm thinking of the former MMI and, and the Noise Leadership um, Institute, which are great programs, well, but actually, it's a huge the, uh, commitment. Actually, we most of the people who are eligible for um, MMI or noise that work in my roundtables, we promote them to go to those those uh, groups, and when they do that, they they stop going to the roundtables because that is a different and very valuable. Those are very valuable things, and and then they come back to the roundtables. Well, so, that. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, because they're 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 different kind of things, and uh, they have those things have in fact kind of more resources. So, for example, Noise says that they put fifty thousand dollars into each one of those uh, leadership, each one of those people, when they have their one year training with them, and 
I, you know, I have, I don't know, six people, I think, who have been to noise in my roundtables. And they have loved those experiences and gotten a lot, of, lot out of them. Uh, and, you know, during that year, they step out of the roundtables and then they come back to the roundtables. So, it's, it's, you know, these are, I mean, you know, this is your career that you're talking about. And, you know, this is your institution that you're talking about. And you get, what, what, you, what you're getting when you go into a roundtable is you're getting a problem-solving group that helps you avoid making a big mistake and helps you test an opportunity. Then you have, we we work also in in these groups, we work in trios. So you have two people that you're working with in this trio, and once or twice in between the meeting, you're on the phone with these guys, and what they're doing is they're holding themselves accountable. These trios help them be accountable. Because, you know, who is holding the, the CEO accountable, really? for that stickiest of issues. Who's doing that? And then, of uh, course, they get, I... as much, they get as much consulting with me as they initiate. So if they want to talk to me, they just, I'm, I'm there for them, you know. So there's a lot that goes on with these, with these things. It's really, they're really great, really wonderful for me, and I hope they are for them. They seem to keep re-upping, so they must be. They must. I think they're very, very valuable. Uh, and so I'm going to. Uh, we're going to have to take another uh, very quick break. And when we come back, Mary, I want to want you to uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the Institute for Cultural Entrepreneurship, which I think is is a, a to me as a logical extension of the work that you're doing uh, with museum directors. But it's terribly exciting. Uh, so we will be back in just a moment uh, with. Uh, uh, Mary Case. Remember, you can reach me at carol.bossert at verizon.net anytime. And you can reach Mary at qm2.com uh, to read some of her papers. Uh, she talked about consulting, and I know that there are some other very good resources on that, on that site. So we will be back in just a moment. You've been listening to Museum Life. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, 
and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working For You with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. I'm Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life, and I'm here today with Mary Case. And uh, we've been talking about leadership issues. And Mary, I know that you are getting ready for uh, a, uh, you are a uh, uh, faculty, a uh, primary faculty, I understand, at the uh, for the Institute for Cultural Entrepreneurship. So I am so pleased that in your busy schedule, you could find time to talk with us today. And could you just share a little bit about uh, the Institute? And I it sounds it's I love it when the words entrepreneurship and museum uh, directors and museum leadership are all in the same line. Right. That's well, very exciting. Actually, this is actually the Institute for Cultural Entrepreneurship in Museums. So we got it all in there for you. Um, it, it comes from the Cooperstown Graduate Program. It's the brainchild of Gretchen Soren, who's the um, director there. Uh, I think this is the fifth year. It's funded by IMLS in part, um, so we have them to thank. Um, and what we're doing is we're working along the spine between mission and margin. We have about a dozen students each year who come with a project in mind. So it could be a project, as we had last year from the Ohio uh, History, Ohio Historical Society that had to do with distance learning. Or uh, another group we had last year was the um, Hudson, Historic Hudson Valley, which is a group of five historic houses. And they have a, um, a project that they call Blaze, where they get 80,000 people over the Halloween uh, over October, 80,000 people. My God, at $10 a pop. That's a pretty ma- amazing um, project. So the idea is you have a project which is very high on mission, which is true of the, um, of the um, Ohio group, or very high on margin, which is true of the Hudson Valley group. But how do you get it to be both high on mission and high on margin? That's the that's the challenge is to to keep it, you know, how to make it how to make the Hudson Valley more high on mission, and the um, and the Ohio more high high on on margin, and that's what we were trying to do in in this program. So it's the cultural entrepreneurship program for museums. We have it this year at the. Um, at Kaikit, uh, which is actually one of the Hudson Valley uh, um, 
properties up on the in Terrytown, the the Rockefeller Estate, which is just an absolutely glorious place to work. They have a small conference center there, and uh, we'll be doing that in, for, for the first full week in July. So that's that's that program. That's it. You know that that's very interesting, uh, Mary, because there there is so much uh, discussion right now, and I, I think very fruitful discussion about this this issue of uh, mission um, mission driven institutions versus uh, you know, bottom line. Uh, institutions i i really like the way you've characterized it between mission and margin uh because of of course modern museums have to be looking at both and i think it's very easy to get swayed one way or the other uh at times well you know without a margin you can't deliver a mission you know without you know in the non in the profit world we'd say profit you know but you have to have that margin unless, because otherwise the mission just goes away. You can't do it. So, you know, you have to look carefully at what your business model is. I have another great book that I've just found this year. It's called Business Model Generation. I hope any, all of your listeners will look that up. That's the website, too, businessmodelgeneration.com. You can download for free from that site. I think the first 70 pages of the book. And it uses uh, as a central tool something they call a canvas, which um, asks you to define your business model pre- uh, proposition. And it helps you understand, helps our nonprofit world understand what that is. What is a business model proposition and how it relates to your audience? Your, and your audience pieces. When you've been in the world, in the world of in this world long enough, you know you see this these kinds of um, references come up in different forms every decade. And this particular tool is so good and designed for us for the nonprofit world that I think it will help us really clarify. What our business model is. We have such a, we have a, such a stupid business model where we get our best clients, our best visitors to pay less through membership than anybody else. You know, yeah. we allow them to come in for almost nothing as many times a year as they want. It's just kind of crazy. It's just a kind of crazy thing. You know? And Very, so we have yes. to figure ways that that they can support us more than they do. And I think this tool might even really be a, a way to help us do that. It's called businessmodelgeneration.com. That's, thank you, Marianne. And I know our, our listeners, and, and I, I too am, uh, will, uh, will, will download this resource. And you said something uh, I think, thought also very very interesting and that is as uh, you know you've when you've been in the business uh, when you've been in our field for a while you see cycles you see these sure. these things come and go and I and I and I do think that uh, as a as museums we still have that tendency to put on someone else's paradigm 
And instead of, of sort of picking and choosing and saying, well, you know, this works really well from the Disney model and this works really well for Google and this works really well for, you know, name your, your, your paradigm, we, we tend to put one on and try to wear it like a straitjacket. And so then we say, well, now we're, we're taking on a model full, full, uh, full force, but but we're not Disney, and we're not right. Google, and we're right. not, you know, uh, we, we, have to, we have to own who we are and what we are, and we have very particular and peculiar uh, needs. Um, right. And particularly those museums that have collections. I know this is not all museums, but those with collections are looking for, you know, you have pre- we're preserving artifacts objects, art materials, archives for the future generations. That is a particular burden. It's a particular joy, but it's a particular burden as well when you're looking at a business model. Yes. So. Yes. So 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 the the organization you mentioned that that does their four days of of or four weeks of of uh, of tours during, you know, October around Halloween, uh, that they're not just doing that so they can fill their coffers. They're doing it so they can protect and preserve their their artifacts and um, and keep that part of their mission going. Right. Right. Exactly. So I, I guess that leads me to uh, to the to another question. I probably know the answer to this, but you know, I'm the host. I get to ask the questions, <laughs> and, and that is um, what. What changes have you observed uh, in terms of the challenges that directors face over you know the last uh, as as you say three decades in the field? Well, I mean, museum directors face the same uh, changes. You know, they live in the same world that everybody else lives in. So we have these massive social, demographic, technological, economic shifts that we swim in, that everybody else swims in, that are, you know, um, the same fundamental shifts in Western economies, the global information, economic societies, the same things that everybody else lives in. Uh, We have huge numbers of museum studies programs, so people are um, trained in museum work as they weren't, you know, when I when I started particularly, I did get a, mu- a museum degree, but I was, you know, among that first kind of cohort of people who had museum studies degrees. So that's a, a shift. You know, a lot of people have degrees in museum work when they come now. Um, there's a huge shift in the you know, because of the uh, current economic crisis in the way fundraising, um, in, in fundraising. Now, I think there is a an issue there because many of the fundraisers themselves haven't latched on to a shift. A few have, but not the typical fundraiser is still raising money from the old paradigms. Or is still trying. Let me say, still trying to raise money from the old paradigms. Um, 
and that could be could be right and it could be wrong. So I think we're in that place with fundraising where what is the right way to raise money is a question. What are we what should we be keeping from the traditional ways to raise money and what is new? So the whole idea of online fundraising seems to be gathering momentum. Lots of momentum. I hear now that, I mean, most of the directors I work with have had at least one Kickstarter campaign, one Indiegogo something or other, you know, so that's happening, and it is, it is those kinds of things are gaining momentum. Major gifts are still the rela- about the relationships. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. I guess those are the things that come mm-hmm. right uh, to the top of my head, you know, we're we're in it with everybody else. The let me just say the um, I got a letter this week from I don't know one of the local museums here. Rate your favorite painting, you know. Mm-hmm. So so now, you know, all of that the gaming the gamification of stuff is, um, you know, this was a. I don't know if it was the Corcoran, or not the Corcoran, it wouldn't be the Corcoran, the Phillips or National Gallery or the Women's Museum. One of the museums, the art museums, the big art museums here in in um, Washington, on the front of their envelope, rank your favorite painting or rate your favorite painting. So so gamification is a big deal, in, even in a state art museum. So all of that's happening. Yes. Change. Yes. And no, nobody ever said that uh, museums are agents of change. Nobody ever said that. Nobody ever said we need to be agents of change. But we live in that world. We're, we're cha- everything is changing around us. So that there's a push and a pull there. Yes, and if we don't become agents of change, then we become the, the continual... Um, responders well I think yeah I think I think you know we're not really poised to be agents of change I think there is a distinction between being a responder and being an agent of change I don't think for example science museums are agents of change I don't think art museums or history museums are agents of change. Maybe contemporary art museums could be called agents of change, but for the most part, we're not that. We can be... I mean, that would, that would imply producers of change, I think. Interesting. Uh, I wish we had another hour to to delve <laughs> into, the, into it. Now we're really getting into it. So, uh, Mary, I'm going to ask you to come back in a couple of, of weeks or, or a month because this is a very important topic that I'd like to uh, to continue on. But you've you've raised some many really important topics for us today. You've given our listeners some really good places to get additional information. Uh, I am I. I heartily recommend that you continue uh, this conversation with Mary Case and and QM2. Uh, 
as, and continue to use museum consultants for, uh, for, for all the good reasons that, that Mary, uh, Mary discussed. Mary, thank you so very much for being on the show today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Carol. Uh, it was my pleasure. Uh, we will be back next week with another interesting topic related to, well, actually, next week will be uh, the 4th of July, so I am rerunning uh, one of my uh, uh, favorite shows. Uh, so I hope you have a chance to listen in. You can always listen in to all of the shows that you've missed. Uh, I will be back in two weeks. Have a happy, happy 4th. Uh, this is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.